There are 60,000 abandoned mines across Australia. These range from poisoned gold rush era mine shafts to huge open cut wounds on the natural landscape. Many pose grave threats to the health of our community and environment. In developing countries like India, these mines are even more dangerous. But what if we could turn these mine sites back into thriving ecosystems and deal with a major waste problem at the same time? Hi, I'm Ben Hickey. Welcome to Tech Now, a podcast about Australian innovations that are shaping the future. Each episode, we chat to great tech thinkers who are changing the world thanks to the Global Connections Fund, a project run by the Australian Academy of Technology and Engineering and supported by the Australian government. Biosolids are the organic matter left over after sewage has been treated. Thanks to new Australian-created technology, this unappealing waste stream could be the key to restoring closed and abandoned mine sites. Distinguished Professor Andy Ball, his team at RMIT, and collaborators in India and around the world are turning biosolids into a special kind of charcoal that could revolutionise mine restoration. And in another incredible innovation, they're using native plant species to remove toxic contaminants from the environment. Hi, Andy. Thank you for joining us. Why is mine restoration so important? Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, Mine restoration, it's about the process of restoring land that's been mined and restoring it into a natural or economically usable state. And although this process of mine restoration and reclamation occurs once mining is complete, the planning of mine reclamation and restoration All those activities have to occur prior to mine being permitted or even started. So mine restoration results uh, in creating useful landscapes that meet a variety of goals and ecosystem uh, requirements, ranging from productive ecosystems or the creation of industrial or, or municipal resources. So why is it so important? Because mine restoration reduces the environmental impacts of mining. Great. So what are the biggest challenges we face in terms of mine restoration and what are the issues with the current approaches? The big challenges are that if you think of a life expectancy of a mine, it could be hundreds of years. And so imagine how regulations have changed, how closure requirements change, how community expectations have changed if we just think back even 50 years to some of our mines. Over the life of a mine, there are so many changes occurring. And as I stated uh, before, that mine closure plan and and restoration has to change along with those expectations. And it has to be updated and it must reflect current changes in management. Management itself may change several times, as we know. Buying and selling of mines is, is commonplace throughout the world. And also, given that timeline, we don't have the same people you know, staff change considerably through that time. And so we don't have the historical aspects of that mine when it started. And so that accountability, all the data that's through the life of the mine about compliance, times it's been exceeded, environmental monitoring, all these things are really important to mine restoration and often get lost over time. So that's that's a big challenge. And if we look at even further back at historical mine sites. They're not planned, they haven't been planned well, they weren't designed and mined for closure right from the beginning. And this creates a number of really uh, big challenges, mainly financial, because you don't know what you're going to find until you start that closure process. So if there's not enough money to close the site, it hasn't been uh, a thought through, 
that's a big issue for for the the mining industry. Sounds like a complex problem. Uh, so one solution that is very exciting and emerging that you and your team have been working on is around a material called biochar. What is biochar and how can it help us with restoration? So biochar is, is first of all, made using a, a process called pyrolysis. So this involves placing biological material, biomass. It could be uh, uh, wood. Uh, in our case, we're going to use biosolids and I'll come on to that in a second. But placing the biomass in a special oven and then heating it to five, six, seven hundred degrees centigrade, where obviously uh, normally that would burn. So the, the pyrolysis happens in the absence of oxygen. Uh, or at best, the presence of very small amounts. So that means that it doesn't, it doesn't burn and uh, it becomes a sort of a, a biochar, a charcoal-type material. It's a, a stabilized sewage sludge. So it's a product of wastewater treatment. And uh, it's a byproduct of wastewater treatment facilities. They're, you know, the historical aspect of using biosolids uh, as a, an additive to improve crop productivity is well known. And so where we're moving to is uh, is the idea that if we can produce a, another product, an easily transportable product, rich in carbon, then we can go back to those mine sites. And, and as you said before, Ben, we're, we're dealing with very different um, types of mining. Some of it is strip mining, which lays bare the, the, the earth, and other is pit mining, where you have pits. So very much it's uh, you know, how you apply the biosolids is, is dependent on, on obviously the topography and, and what has happened before in the mine. But the idea is that you're replenishing those depleted soils with biochar as a, a stable carbon compound. It's, it's not going to uh, emit carbon dioxide or, or any other products, but it's going to provide a very strong matrix for your plants for the ecosystem to return either naturally or or by by restoration by a process where where we plant uh, natural products and this will give those plants the optimum conditions to to grow and that soil will start to be uh, the basis of a return of ecosystem processes in terms of decomposition in terms of destroying some of the and tying up some of those metals that are often associated with mine waste. pH, adjusting the pH of water, acid. This is the, the natural ecosystem that, that is missing. And that's why the, the, the restoration is so important. That sounds incredible. So as you say, uh, we're looking at very different types of mines produced at different stages in our technological history. And I imagine what we've mined has shifted as well. You know, we're now uh, moving away from fossil fuels to all of the different metals that we'll need for uh, renewables technology, uh, going right back to the gold rush. Uh, and I imagine there are different contaminants and byproducts that come from these different stages. How does that differ your approach when looking at mine restoration? Well, first of all, I think that the, the novelty of, of this approach and why we think it's, it's got uh, benefits not only in Australia but, but throughout the world is that what we're starting with as a material is not a, an expensive product. You know, and, and we're, this, this research uh, is all coming stemming from the, the Australian Research Council Training Centre which is for the transformation of Australia's biosolids resource. That's based at RMIT University. 
and it brings together this multidisciplinary team of academics um, from local international universities and leading industry partners to look at, at the potential role of, of biosolids. We know how effective they are in, in agriculture. And as I said, 70% of all biosolids uh, are, are, end up in, in agriculture. But we're looking for new, new industries, new approaches, value-adding some of the products. This is a valuable resource. It's full of nitrogen and phosphorus. And, and so you know, what, what this center's brought together and, and the uniqueness of it is that uh, it's the first training center of its kind internationally that transforms the way biosolids are being managed and training the next generation of managers of, of biosolids. So we're getting in at the very ground, ground uh, floor here and training people and getting people to understand what the potential of, of biosolids are. And this is one approach which has emerged uh, in the last couple of years as the training center has begun. So we're going to deliver new ways of managing biosolids, and this is, this is really important in this particular process. We're going to transform agriculture, land management practices, including restoration, and provide new market opportunities for the Australian biosolid sector. So these are the advantages that this particular approach take. Uh, it's a low-cost approach, and that means it is uh, very um, transferable. So going back to your point about dealing with different systems, well, we have the fundamental tools that will transgress all of these, all of these basic uh, layout and designs. We know, and our research is leading us more and more to understand the impact of biochars from biosolids on soil properties and also on the impact on the plants. So we're confident that our research will lead us to be able to deliver solutions, uh, including mine restoration, with very uh, minimal costs, uh, but highly effective. And you know that will mean that we get significant cost savings, but we don't uh, compromise the environmental impact. So it sounds like this work uh, encompasses different disciplines, different industries, different institutions, and even different countries. Uh, what's it been like to collaborate with so wide a uh, cross-section of sectors, um, especially in the wake of COVID-19? I know you've done a lot of work with uh, partners in India. Absolutely. Uh, I, I think one of the, you know, the wonderful things about, about these kind of training centers uh, you know, from the Australian Research Council are, are that you bring together, you know, in this case, 21 industries right from the water companies who've you know who produce the biosolids uh, as a byproduct of their water the great in work they do right the way through to agriculture who use the biosolids so it's that whole biosolids transformation and then the researchers we have scientists we have social scientists because you know as we've learned it's it's there's no point making a product which is fit for purpose if it's not socially acceptable so, you know, transforming biosolids is really important. You, you don't want it to have the odour, the characteristics that make people think, ah, you know, <laughs> this, where's this come from? Yeah. So, so that, that's a really important part. And, and that's why we're looking at transformation. So engineers who, you know, we have uh, patented technology to produce the biochar within the centre, within RMIT. We have experts on, on social capacity and uh, who are looking at how, how to make sure social acceptability of this product's good. We have environmental regulators to make sure that we're adhering and, and looking at all the risks 
are associated with the use of these materials. And then we have the scientists, the researchers who are looking at uh, the interactions in the environment and the impact on restoration itself. So that is truly a, a unique blend of people. And then to travel to, to internationally, you know, we, we have uh, links in Europe, in the UK, in the US, and of course, through this program in India, which was a revelation to, to work with key companies who are, are extremely knowledgeable. And, uh, you know, one thing I learned is that the mining industry is so global that, that everybody we spoke to has, has been to Australia, worked on mining sites, they're in India now, but, but you know, they have a fundamental knowledge of all the processes, which is very very advantageous when you try to describe what you're wanting to do in the planning. Everybody understood the concept, which was really great. So it truly is an international uh, solution that we're looking for. That's extraordinary. To bring it back to an Australian context, uh, I, you're also working on using native plant species to take toxins out of the ecosystem. That sounds amazing. Could you tell us more about that and how that might work? Absolutely. So, you know, we, we do a lot of work with contaminants of various sorts. You know, we, we know that hydrocarbons and diesel and petroleum are big, big uh, components, contaminants in the environment. We've heard a lot about uh, plastics and microplastics. So we've dealt a lot and metals are another, you know, a key area, especially in mining. Uh, that's, there's a lot of, uh, of, of metals that, that tend to be in the environment after mining. And we've lost all of those services that, that the ecosystem used to offer in, in dealing and treating them. So they, they may have always been there, but we've now lost the, the service industry to, to help support that. So what we've been uh, trying to do, in, and metals in particular, you know, with a hydrocarbon, you can, you can actually get microorganisms and plants to degrade them to, back to water and carbon dioxide. But with metals, we can't do that. You, you can't degrade a metal from its base metal. You can transform it into another form. And the idea of using plants is that plants are really good at sequestering metals from the environment and from soils in particular. So this process uh, is a, a remediation process. It's actually got its own name. It's called phytoremediation. Um, we're using plants to remove, to transfer, so from the soil back to the plant, or to stabilize contaminants in this type in this case uh, uh, heavy metals is a key problem so this phytoremediation these ability of these plants and there are lots of mechanisms involved in that process it's a, a root uptake involving microorganisms and plants but the key is the plant has to be growing well and effectively in the environment it's that root structure that's important if we haven't got a good plant, healthy plant, and good root structure, we're not going to have a good process for stabilization and remediation. And that means that we need a plant that is, can grow in that environment. And, and that's why the importance of phytoremediation is that you have to select a plant that can grow in that environment. It, you can't you know, use sunflowers or willows commonly used across Europe in the US. But in some of Australian climates, and certainly in India, this is, they're not going to grow. And we found that uh, using native grasses has been a really good process. So, you know, a wallaby grass, for example, it's a really hardy plant. It grows under a range of um, conditions and pH, range of metal concentrations, even salinity. And uh, its ability to, to have a wide root structure and therefore to take up 
and stabilize those metals has been crucial. So phytoremediation is a really important uh, process, but you must select plants that are preferably growing in that area so they're native. So when they grow back in their ecosystem, it's a natural ecosystem. They're not. We're not exporting in, uh, you know, plants that don't belong there, which could cause a whole set of other issues, as as we know in the past. So native species are going to grow best. They're naturally present, so you're not disturbing the ecosystem uh, very much, and they're very effective. So that's why we've really focused on that phytoremediation, but native plants. Many Australian native species also famously regenerate quickly after fires and thrive in ashy or charcoal-heavy environments. Does that make them especially amenable to biochar? That's a, that's a good question because you're right. Um, you know, Australian uh, native plants are, are well used to, to the cycling of burning and, and producing chars and then re-establishing themselves. So, yes, that, that is a significant advantage. And, of course, we know that some plants have, have built that as an essential part of their life cycle. Um, so that's another consideration. And, and you know, where we're, we're heading is that we, we go through a very important process in our research laboratory within the centre where we start to to examine those properties so you know you don't you have to do a lot of preliminary work to know that that plant is going to establish itself so you start in the laboratory in the greenhouse you move to pilot scale before you you implement the plan and that means that you become uh, you can carry out a lot of simple experiments that are really important about what type of conditions you know how much biochar will they will they tolerate what kind of contaminant levels would they not would they require? And that comes back to, to right to the beginning, knowing what the, the history of that site is, knowing where the contamination was, where there's least contamination, because you might be able to plant some plants in areas of, of, of an old mine site which were not you know, completely degraded and the contamination level is low. But when you get to the central you know, area where it's processing, you might need another plant. And so all of that is, is really important. So selection of the plants. And again, you, you're right, Australian species have worked very well. So what stage is this research up to and what's next? So as I said, we've got within the centre, we're the, the Transforming Biosolid Centre, we've got researchers, uh, engineers. Uh, you know, We have an associate professor, Kalpit Shah at RMIT, who's developed the biochar technology from biosolids very successfully. Um, and then we've got the plant biologists who are looking at how we can use that biochar, how the plant responds. And uh, we have others who are working on the soil microbiology, looking at how the presence of biochar sequesters more carbon dioxide, for example, or other products, how it unlocks some of the phosphorus, perhaps, that's there. So all of these aspects. And then there's the risk assessment. You know, We, we have to make sure that uh, the environmental regulators across across Australia and across the world are comfortable. So we're carrying out a lot of risk analysis and we have social scientists involved in that process and also the process of social acceptability. So it's it's a multi-dimensional, multi-level process it's that we're going through. It's a five-year centre and, and we're working through through this and we'll be having a whole range of solutions. And this is this is one we've explored and, and you know, we got a, such a great... Uh, uh, support from from colleagues in India and, and America and the UK that that we feel we are doing something that is truly unique globally uh, and there's a great demand and requirement 
But of course, we, we have to present the data. We have to do the right research before we, we can say it's, uh, it's, it's ready to roll out. But that's where we're heading. Brilliant. So if we were to imagine a bit further down the track, can you give us a picture of what a closed mine might look like before and after restoration using these technologies? So, I th- you know, unfortunately, around the world, you don't have to go far to find, find examples of sites that have closed but have not been restored. And, uh, you know, fortunately, legislation now builds restoration into the plan. So many of those sites are historical, which is, you know, modern day mine sites are really very environmentally uh, aware. And so that, that that's built in. But, you know, that some of these plants are some of these old mines, you know, I'm talking uh, maybe four kilometers long, a strip of land completely depleted, uh, four kilometers long, two kilometers wide and 600 meters deep. You know, these are the, the kind of sites you can imagine. It's literally a, it's, it's a hole and it's destroyed. And, you know, the quality of the water going through there and then going on perhaps to groundwater for drinking water for local communities. Perhaps it's, it's in rivers. You know, the pH is usually very, very low, which means it's acidic, which means, uh, you know, many organisms will be lost because pH is a really tough thing to live with at those levels. Uh, you know, we're not, Obviously, the, the, we're down to, to rock, so there is very little you know, plant presence. So that's where you need a, a lot of strong material like the, the biosolids and the biochar to form that base and, and not, not a, a sort of a, a very rich nutrient that's going to give off nitrates and uh, you know, carbon dioxide and methane even. This has got to be a very resilient uh, product, which locks away that carbon and phosphorus and only provides it when the plants are, are ready for it and the microbial activity is there. So that's why another reason why we can see this, uh, this product as being particularly useful, plus its value. It's a low-value product, starting product, and that, that's important. So you can imagine that uh, over time, you can see the restoration, plants, plant life returning, and it's, it can be a long process and it could be a short process. And as I said before, on one plant, on one mine site, you might have areas that you can rehabilitate really quickly, but others are going to take longer. So that's where the plan and that's why the knowledge of what's present in each around the site is very important. So it's and every site is different. So, you, you know, that's just one example. But beforehand, it's you know, something which is uh, can't be used. And, and probably the area around it is contaminated. The drinking water might be contaminated. Certainly you would be worried about growing crops that you're going to, f- going to use as food in there because of the metals that, that could be absorbed. So beforehand we see this, this very stark picture and, and you know, imagine that it's, we're not just talking about uh, the, the, the ecosystem, we're talking about you know, loss of livelihoods for people around there. So, you know, we might have had farmers there who've lost their position. We might have people who worked in the mine who now have, can't grow their crops. They can't drink the water. So the situation socially is also very difficult. And that's why the, the restoration is so important. And, and that community-based restoration where you involve people, even maybe employ people who worked at the site to start helping that restoration. You know, so you can get agriculture back. You can get grazing of cattle and sheep. You can start to get the water so it has fish. All this is the restoration process, and it's not an overnight process. If a, if a mine's been open for 100 years, you can't expect to change that in a year. 
maybe a decade or so to, to really establish those changes. But it's absolutely crucial. And there's no reason why those post-restoration, uh, you have all those activities. You know, it can be can be used as a natural ecosystem restoration. You can use it for, for industry if you, if you wish. You can use it for, for a lot of things, but it's got to have the ability to deliver the ecosystem services that it had before. Otherwise, that site will be degraded for a long time. So you, you see a site which is fit for purpose, fit for use for, for animals, for plants, for humans. That's, that's what a restoration should look like afterwards. That's so exciting. Thank you, Andy. Uh, the thought of looking at one of these degraded sites and seeing the potential of something entirely different uh, and your technology is helping make that possible. Is there anything else you'd like to add? No, I, I, I think, uh, you know, the the journey we're on, in, uh, certainly this, uh, you know, the, the Global Connection Bridging Grant really enabled us to, to extend that journey and to listen to, to other areas. You know, India has... Probably, uh, you know, far more mine sites in that that require restoration, and the social impacts of a mine closure are, are stark. There, it's you know, it's far, far more obvious than you would see in Australia, and that hit home the importance of what we're doing. If you can imagine the population of of India, the biosolid load from there, if it could be harnessed, and and that's one of the things we didn't just meet the the mining companies. We we talked to the water companies as well and uh, you know the, the picture is very different in the water companies in, in India for example the, they allow uh, people to, to come and just take away the, the, the sort of raw biosolids and put them on agriculture literally people uh, can walk up and, and take away a bag of pretty much raw biosolids or raw, raw sludge not even treated we, we mentioned COVID but wastewater would be a very effective way of transferring a lot of pathogens and, and we know from the work in Australia that COVID is in our water system and so you know from that perspective as well it, it's it's trying to get the message that actually if you allow them and, and look after the biosolids they become a valuable resource and and getting in to meet people like uh, you know Biplop Chatterjee at uh, Geovale in Calcutta was fantastic because their knowledge of Australian mines, of, of Indian mines, and their perception how this could be implemented was crucial and would be crucial as we go forward. Incredible. Well, thank you so much, Andy. That was Distinguished Professor Andy Ball, recipient of the Global Connections Bridging Grant, part of the Global Innovation Strategy of the National Innovation and Science Agenda. For more stories about world-changing innovations, go to atsc.org.au slash technow. Thanks for listening.